0: Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who, on the surface, appear to be totally ordinary. Underneath the surface, they have many interesting things going on. Lindsay Leishar is a freelance editor, writer, and college English instructor. Her work has appeared in Verily, Plowshares, and The Young Catholic Woman. She's traveled to Europe, lived in Sicily, and volunteered alongside the Missionaries of Charity in India. That's Mother Teresa's missionaries. We are speaking today about her hard work, creativity, and published work. Lindsay is an amazingly eloquent wordsmith. She works hard at her craft, and in every piece, her gentle, heartfelt personality shines through. Hey, Lindsay.
1: Hi, Jim. How are you?
0: I am good. Hey, before we get into the really good stuff like Where do you get your ideas? And what's it like going back and forth with editors until they greenlight your work? Let's just outline your publication history. What exactly is Verily? And when did you start writing for them?
1: Um, Verily is an online women's magazine. And it produces um, what I feel are really substantial, thoughtful articles um, that help women become, as the magazine says, less of who you should be and more of who you are. Um, I definitely recommend checking it out um, to anyone who's listening who hasn't uh, looked at it. Um, And I started writing for Verily in 2015. Um, At least that's when I first, when I landed my first publication there.
0: How many essays do you think you've written at this point for Verily?
1: Um, about 27 articles at this point.
0: So 27 since 2015. That's very impressive, actually. Thank you. Um, what is Plowshares, and when did you start writing for them?
1: Um, Plowshares is a literary journal. Um, it has, I think it's mostly a print publication, but I um, work on the blog side of things um, I started writing as a book reviewer for their blog in 2018.
0: And what type of, okay, so book reviews primarily, and um, mm-hmm. how many works in plowshares at this point?
1: I think I have about 12 articles, mostly on books of poetry, but um, a couple um, on fiction or essays.
0: Okay, um, that's 39 so far by my count, if I added it right. Um, and you've also worked for The Young Catholic Woman. How many works do you have in that publication?
1: Um, I think there's about six in that one. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, and what type of things do you do for the young Catholic woman?
1: Um, Writing about um, things that have to do, again, with this uh, audience of young women, but um, with a Catholic lens, too. Um, As a Catholic, it's, it's neat to get to write about faith. And so um different aspects of faith. I've written about um things like uh just dealing with things like anxiety, also um kind of confronting the the monsters within us, things that we have to work on um in our own lives. Um I've done things about uh, it's hard to remember, but like things about the Song of Songs. Um so Yeah. Go ahead and check them out and you'll probably learn a little bit more.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, are there any other outlets in which you've published?
1: Those I think are the main ones. Um, some, there's a couple on, uh, another, a blog for another literary journal called Ruminate. I've, Written, I think two articles there, that one is, that particular uh, publication is looking at art and faith together. Um, I think, yeah, so, yeah, there are a few extant pieces, but I, I feel like Verily Plowshares and The Young Catholic Women are where most of my pieces are right now.
0: Given that we just sort of looked at or overviewed maybe 40 to 50 different essays. Do you have a favorite?
1: A favorite is hard. Um, but I've really enjoyed the articles where I can apply literature to real life. Um,
0: yeah. I'm going to ask you an example about that sort of thing a little bit later. Uh, Mm -hmm. and then if you have an example that you'd like to bring up, then please do at that time. Um, is there one particular essay that is just proven over time to be the most popular?
1: Um, yeah, I think actually my very first publication in Verily was the most popular one. Um, I was so moved to see that this article actually had been translated into Portuguese on another part of the internet. It was shared a lot. Yeah.
0: At a certain point, maybe 2,000 shares.
1: Yeah, a little bit, a little bit over that. Yeah,
0: I feel like if I had something that had two thousand chairs, I would be incredibly tempted to just try to copy myself, to just repeat what I had done before. Have you tried to do that?
1: Um, no. Um, not directly. Um, I do look at similar themes. Like, for example, that particular essay was about literature and its application um, to life. It was um, what Jane Austen taught me about being a strong woman. And I explored um, Jane Austen novels through the lens of women's strength. Um, So there have been other essays that look at other works of literature and the strength of women, but in different ways, if that makes sense.
0: It does. Um, And I will probably ask you just a little bit more about that later. But for now, let's kind of walk through the whole process, everything from getting an idea to publication and just everything in between. I I feel like a lot of writers and just a lot of workers, period, would actually kind of like to know, how do you get your work done? Hmm. How do you get started?
1: Um, I start by listening. can listen through a variety of things. Um, Prayer, walking are two ways of listening. Um, Also just kind of seeing what people are talking about on social media or what my friends are thinking about. Um, It isn't something I consciously do, but um, ideas come from what's happening Um, both in the interior landscapes of my own being um, and in the lives of friends, um, as well as, again, what's happening in the world at large. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of how I get started with ideas.
0: Okay. Well, there are times maybe when a person has more ideas than she can use. How do you Mm -hmm. choose which idea?
1: Um, Well, that depends on the processes, um, of sharing ideas with different outlets. Um, like for Verily, I can often pitch a few ideas at a time, um, because that's what the editor would prefer. And I'm told which ones seem right for Verily's readership. So it's kind of nice. I can, um, share everything I'm thinking and, and kind of get the feedback of what would be the best for that audience.
0: How many do you pitch at a given time?
1: For Verily, it depends on what they are asking for. Often they're looking for about three months at a time, so three to four pitches um, are are a good amount
0: to pitch. Okay, and then you pitch maybe three or four and they accept one or two?
1: Uh, it depends. Um, I'd say for them in recent times, I, I think around three of or
0: are usually chosen. Holy cow, that's actually a really good track record. If a professional baseball player had a batting average like that, they would be batting 750, which would be, you know, just double essentially what the greatest hitters of all time have done. If uh, a player usually bats 400, they're considered an absolute legend, and here you're batting 750. I just think that's really amazing.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. It definitely wasn't always that way. Um I think it's come with relationship um, with the editor, and also just having a sense of what Verily's style is. I mean, when I first started pitching to Verily, before that Jane Austen article, there were quite a few that I pitched that weren't accepted, so um, it's definitely uh, been something that's grown over time.
0: Can you mention uh, a recent one that was accepted?
1: Um... Yeah, there is one that I'm working on right now about apologizing and why we might feel like over-apologizing in, uh, one, our current uh, times, but also why do some people like myself um, apologize um, and over-apologize? So, yeah, that one is one that's in the works right now. Kind of just looking at the ways in which apology becomes like a shield from criticism. Oh, that's interesting.
0: That if I apologize enough, then maybe they won't criticize me.
1: Yeah, because I've already kind of covered it. Um, So it's kind of (laughs) like, yeah, it's trying to. And that, uh, as I'll talk about in the article, kind of blocks from healthy relationships or relationships in which... Um, we don't like to hear the word criticism, but criticism doesn't have to mean saying unkind things. It can come from a place of love to help us be better. And since we're flawed people, you know, um, it's definitely worth uh, thinking about what are our apologies doing and are we being sincere when we say them? And I speak to myself foremost. I'm uh, an an over-apologizer to an extreme
0: (laughs) so <laughs> I, honestly, yeah. I think that's one of the things that's most beautiful about your writing is whenever I read a piece by you, I, I always think that to a certain degree, this is very, very personal, that this is very individual. I've heard it said that the best art, the most universal art is actually the most personal and the most individualized. And and I really feel that that's often true with what you're writing, Lindsay, um, is that it's, it's a little bit like just reading a window or reading through a window into your soul, but, but then the applications are toward everybody else. And I just think that that's a very, very fascinating thing that you do. And I just wanted to compliment you on that. Thank you. Well, there's the actual writing of the piece. There's coming up with the idea, there's talking perhaps with Verily, perhaps with another outfit. Um, I'd like to pause for just a minute on your lyrical style. And you do have a lyrical style, but it's also easy to read. Um, Would you please read this little excerpt from one of your essays on Tolstoy's Anna Karenina?
1: Sure. In Anna Karenina, I remember initially being a bit annoyed at having to be privy to Levin's every emotional twinge. But I eventually realized that these moments of irritation, despair, and bliss were necessary to assessing his interior world. And following a character like Levin, I realized I am very much like him. Because Tolstoy didn't shy away from revealing Levin's melancholic temperament in its best and worst moments, I could better enter into his realization that life will never be the ideal he longs for. And yet, life still matters.
0: For people who don't know, William Faulkner said that Anna Karenina was the greatest novel of all time, by the greatest novelist of all time, and somebody else once said that Tolstoy is writing about you, your family, and your friends. So you had that little passage where you said, I realized I am very much like Levin, the main character of Anna Karenina, and I just thought, well, I guess that's Tolstoy at work. Um, but in discussing your style, I just really liked depth, touches like twinge, bliss, and that very powerful last sentence. I, I just love your contrast between Levin's melancholic personality and his idealism, and also your conclusion that despite our human pain, life still matters. So one question I have is, how long does it take you to write a paragraph like that?
1: Um. I I don't know. Um, usually there's a flow when writing essays like these, um, but in the process of editing, there things change, and I often go back to reread and change words and uh, trying to make it less wordy. So there's definitely a process. I don't know how I don't know how long it takes. I'll have to time myself next time. But yeah, I, it's, it is, it is a process
0: maybe this might be an easier question to answer um this particular essay is 1300 words long um how long does it take you to compose an essay a whole essay like this
1: yeah i think if you include a round of edits um after my editor has seen it i'd say probably somewhere under five hours It, it does depend on the essay though um and kind of how many times I go back and reread. I do try to reread a few times after creating, though.
0: Okay, okay. Um, We've discussed how you get your ideas. How do you develop those ideas?
1: Really, um, when I begin writing, Mm. I only have my pitch to guide me. Um, I'm unsure where we're going to end up at the end of the essay, which kind of makes it fun. Um, There's kind of an uncertainty. It's kind of like a puzzle, like where is this going to end up? What do, where are we going to end up saying, or what are we going to end up saying, where are we going to end up going? And sometimes, you know, we kind of shy away from the pitch a little bit. So it kind of goes in a slightly different direction. So there's kind of uh, fun to that for me.
0: That's kind of intriguing. I guess that's kind of like going to the problem with one date and maybe leaving with another date. I'm not quite sure. Uh you start off with one idea and then end up doing something that's completely different. Uh when you write the essay then, or excuse me, when you write the pitch, how long is the pitch? How long does it take to craft a pitch?
1: Good question. Usually pitches start off um in my mind and I'm kind of mulling over what I wanna say. I, sometimes I'll take some notes on what I want to say. Um, when I send it off to my editor, I'm kind of thinking about, um, what part of the magazine, um, this will be speaking to, for example, some of my work might be more on the culture side of things or more on the intentional living side of things. Um, there's kind of a label you give it, um, a title of some sort, and then, um, a few, uh, sentences about it. Um, I don't know. I'd say that that process, it depends on how many I'm sending out. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe 20 minutes to craft, uh, it all after I've been thinking about it for a while. So, Yeah.
0: You actually seem like a rather fast writer to me, and that makes me just a little bit jealous and uh, certainly appreciative. Uh, let me ask, do you ever get writer's block?
1: Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I will say with writing, though, that I actually find it a slow process. Um, that when I'm sitting down at the computer, um and typing, there's room for things to bloom and grow, and it's not usually like a burst of words. It's, I feel that when I'm typing, I'm kind of going at the pace of my thought, and it's not, it's not super fast. Um, in terms of writer's block, though, I find that journaling can be a good way for working through that. Um, In journaling, I'm often writing for myself, um, and I can often work uh, out ideas in a rough way and be okay with that. Um, I also feel that when I'm writing drafts of essays, I love being able to give myself permission for the draft to not be that great. Um, It relieves the pressure and helps me get out all my ideas on paper, even if they are disorganized. And in that way, there's not this feeling of this has to be like gold when it comes out, you know, it's not going to be that way. And I'd never write anything if if I had that kind of mindset as I wrote. So,
0: yeah. I feel that I personally can go through five, six, seven drafts of something. Um, my publication history is nowhere near as good as yours. How, How many drafts do you think that you go through?
1: That's a really good question because Unlike poetry where I keep uh, a copy of every single draft I make, I don't typically do that with essays. Um, Usually there's my round of editing and first drafting that I do. And through that process, we just go through a variety. I go through a variety of um, changes in the piece, send it off to my editor, Um, she'll make uh, comments and changes and kind of tighten it up for concision, um, and send it back to me to fix. So, um, yeah, I feel that I, I think that I, I actually forgot what you were asking me about. You want to ask that again?
0: Uh, just how many drafts do you think things oh, go through? Yeah.
1: I don't know. I, I feel that there are so many. Little changes that we that happen in the midst of that, I'd say, in terms of actual drafts that get passed back in for it, I'd say at least two usually two is enough um, like me sending something in, getting back some edits, and then me sending it back again um is usually enough sometimes there's a third that's needed to kind of get it where it needs to be, but I'd say.
0: And just a lot of little polishings that happen all the time Mm -hmm. as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Well, I I feel like people would also sort of like to know, I guess, for lack of a better word, scheduling. Um, Mm -hmm. I I feel like I've met all kinds of people, and I certainly have been this person, where people will say, I would really love to do something creative, but I just don't have time. And I would just kind of like to know, how do you work your way around that problem?
1: Yeah, well, I think about the best times in my week. And for me, that's usually Saturday through Monday. Um, the work week r- burns me out pretty quickly. And I'm usually best able to write from, from a restful state of mind. Um, as the week kind of goes on, my my mindset is less, less restful. I'm more tired. Um, and so I'm less able to write well. Um, so I think in terms of scheduling... It's discerning when you're most able to do whatever your creative thing is. Um, so asking yourself, like, what time of the day um, is useful for making time for it. And I know a lot of people have said, like, scheduling, scheduling it like an appointment, um, making time for it. Um, I think the reality is, though, that a lot of us have jobs, and this is kind of our side gig, or maybe even just our hobby so I, I would say if it works for you to have a time that you do this every single day, great. If you can do it a couple times a week, that's great too. I think it is a very personal discernment of how, much, how many days and how much time you want to put into it.
0: I, I think that's true. For you and your current circumstances, are Saturday, Sunday, and Monday your writing days?
1: Yeah, I'd say more the weekend than Monday. But Monday, um, my work usually finishes up a little earlier. And so I do have time to do um, a little work if I want to. Mm
0: -hmm. Are you a morning writer or a night writer?
1: That's a great question. Um, Daytime is usually better. um, And I would say that my best times are usually Um, mid-morning to like early afternoon as opposed to um, post 4 (laughs) p.m.
0: I just, yeah, yeah. mentally, I just don't feel like I'm all that sharp after 4 p.m. I can get some things done, but just in terms of sheer mental sharpness, uh, definitely much better before 4 p.m. Certainly. Certainly, But yeah. I've heard about authors I think William Faulkner had a night job And wrote As They Lay Dying In six weeks At his oh night job Which to me that's just amazing That he did that um, yeah. Anne Rice I think wrote Interview with the Vampire in five weeks She would start wow. at midnight and, and write until seven in the morning Which I suppose if you're going to write A creepy vampire novel That's probably the way to do it
1: <laughs> Yeah That's amazing.
0: Um, do you do anything to boost your energy?
1: I think, um, I think there is like a rhythm, um, of life that has to happen. Like having solitude time is good, but also having time around people is good as well. So, um, I think spending time with people and living life um, helps me kind of come back to the writing desk with something to say. Um, Trying to get out there and take walks um, is great for me. Um, But, yeah, spending quality time with people, I think, is definitely a way to boost energy for me. Um, Sometimes just resting, I think there is – There's a quality with writing where sometimes I just am always wanting to do either my day job or this. And so taking time to just not do um, is hard, but is necessary as well.
0: To just exist and to just rest for a little bit.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, to actually relax, which as an American, I have a hard time doing.
0: Right. I was just speaking with somebody the other day who had spent a year in Italy. And apparently in Italy, they have a saying that if you got one thing done today on your to-do list, you're ahead of the game. And as an American, she just absolutely couldn't relate at all. Um, It was just very, very funny. Um, There's actually a book on creativity called Rest. And the premise is that we can achieve more by resting more. Um, I think I should probably ask what other obstacles in terms of either creativity or getting writing done do you face?
1: I think it's really back to what we were just talking about, about busyness Um, and the stress and fatigue that they lead to are, um, they can be pretty big obstacles. Um, I notice that when my mind is restless or I'm overwhelmed, I'm not able to write very much or very well. Um, And sometimes that's actually good because I think it points me toward the thing I need to do, which is rest.
0: Okay. This is why I think it's just so challenging to create something, whether it's a business, a work of art, or an essay. And I would like to applaud you for taking on an even more monumental challenge than many people would dare to take on. And that's the fact that you write poetry. I mean, Lindsay, sometimes you live in the land of Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Chaucer. I think poetry is a very hard field to work in. I'm kind of dying to talk to you about it. Um, but just a, a few basics first. Where are your poems published?
1: Um, yeah, so poetically, I have a lot less out there. Um, there aren't really too many places online um the most recent that you can find online, um, what's the poem called 27, um, published by the Indianapolis Review. Um, and that, yeah, it was about kind of, yeah, being 27 years old and not knowing where life was going. Um, and so, yeah, but I also have a few, uh, publications in Kansas City Voices, which is a, um, Uh, literary magazine based here in Kansas City, um, which has been really nice. Um,
0: Okay, and you also have a chapbook.
1: Yeah, I do.
0: What exactly is a chapbook?
1: Um, It's a small book of poems. So your average book of poetry is going to be like 50 plus poems. Um, A chapbook can be like really small. I'd say anywhere from like eight to... Um, under 50, so like 8 to 40, somewhere around there. Um, mine is very small. It is 10 pounds.
0: Okay. Can people buy it?
1: Um, if the press that came from hadn't folded, I would say yes. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, uh, presses, especially small presses, do um, uh, close up shop a lot. And so, yeah, currently I don't think so. But I am trying I'm trying to brainstorm how to get it out there. I might consider taking pictures of each of the pages now that the rights are with me too, so that people can see it. So um, yeah. Congrats.
0: Maybe you could put it on Amazon. I don't know.
1: Maybe. I the there's no more copies though. So um it's hard to yeah, because of how it was printed. It was printed in a really lovely way, the uh the press was uh, Leaf Press and located in Canada, and they did beautiful things with paper. They were very considerate about the paper everything appeared on. So I really, I love that.
0: I have a copy. It is a beautiful little book. It was actually the winner in the international category in the Overleaf Chapbook Manuscript Competition in 2017. What exactly is Matchbook Night about?
1: Uh, it's about a month I spent um, as a live-in tutor with a family in Sicily, which was an amazing experience. It was, again, you talked about rest and, and Italy earlier, and it was the most restful experience I've had in my in my 20s. I was very amazed at how easily I was able to be like, okay, I have no schedule, um, and just kind of living the family's like with them, that was really such a privilege,
0: yeah. Well, sounds like a beautiful, relaxing experience, and people just love to spend time in Italy, so I guess you probably uh, kind of uh, lit up the board with that one, Uh, just every victory that a person maybe can think of, just in terms of vacation and just time abroad. Um, So just a few comments about poetry. I think hundreds of millions of people, Maybe billions of people actually love poetry. The odd situation in my view is is that I don't think the average person knows that he or she likes it. But whenever somebody actually recites a funny poem or reads a psalm or something from Shakespeare, or if your friend composes something, people tend to be curious about it and they want to hear the poem. And then there's Shakespeare in the Park. Kansas City will often put on 25 to 30 performances per year. The audience can fill a football field. It's basically completely occupied every time they do it. Hundreds of people will show up every single night, 25 nights in a row. And if you don't get there early, you get stuck in the far back in the mosquito pit. And all of this is evidence to me that people actually really love poetry, but strangely, People don't think they do. What draws you to poetry, Lindsay?
1: I really love the slow unfolding of detail and the ability to rest in a single image. Watch that bloom before your very eyes. Um, I also really love the way that people can speak through poetry to the hearts of others. There's a sense of poetry being something other than your ordinary speaking, and I, I'm attracted to that. For me, poetry is, is prayer. So it's a way to speak to others, and it's a way to speak to God.
0: Kind of a special, elevated speech, and maybe a form of deep communication to others and to God?
1: Yeah, but you can use very ordinary language um, in this so when I'm saying elevated, I'm not thinking about like you know these and those, but just very ordinary way of speaking. But also just the way it's set up, um, it broken into stanzas, things like that, make it kind of special. Special way of speaking, maybe. It's
0: beautiful, beautifully said. What are some of your themes that you explore in
1: poems? Um historically for me it's been the landscape of the inner life um I imagine the inner life is kind of this like garden space um as I've gotten older I think um the little moments of beauty in the everyday so I've tried to move a little more outward um so that others can more readily experience That's what I'm what I want to communicate um More recently, I think poetry has helped me reflect on experiences like visiting India or like during the pandemic. Um, And so, again, helping me process and see the world around me in, in new ways.
0: Awesome. As a poet, do you think it's better to be crystal clear and absolutely understood? Or is it better to say something that's beautiful but hard to decipher?
1: depends on a couple of things, uh, both on what the poet wants to communicate through his or her poem and the reader's own threshold. Um, there's a writer, Richard Orr, who uses this idea of thresholds, um, and says that a poem that is best for you will draw you just a little bit past your threshold of understanding. Um, things might feel just a little bit, uh, different or slightly out of your depth but it's not going to feel chaotic if a poem takes you into a place of chaos it's kind of gone too far past your threshold and so um what people's threshold are, are going to be different though um so i don't think a poem needs to say everything uh so that you understand every word and every meaning Um, But some poets do that, and and that's lovely. And some poets don't, and that can be just as lovely. But it's going to depend on the reader which thing really appeals to them.
0: Beautifully said. Um, Was that called brush molds?
1: Uh, Thresholds.
0: Thresholds?
1: Yeah, like, uh, so there's the T-H in that. Uh, Okay. almost
0: like going through the threshold of a door. Oh, right? okay. Mm-hmm. Thresholds, thresholds, beautiful. Um, if your chapbook is still available, it is at www.leappress.ca uh, uh, slash lindsay underscore slash lindsay underscore HTM um, I looked it up the other day and I, I hope it's still available, but it, but if it's not, then say la vie. Maybe it will be available in a another source but I just wanted to point out to people that if they didn't know where to start I would personally start there but Lindsay what would you recommend if somebody wanted to start reading poetry where should they start
1: oh my goodness that too is such an individual thing um like I'd recommend different authors to you than I'd recommend to another friend um I I think that it would depend on the person and kind of what where their interests lie. But I will say that recently I've been enjoying the poetry of a songwriter, actually. Her name is Lizzie Schell. Um, and she has an album called Seed, which you can find on YouTube and listen to um, the songs there. But, wow, it's amazing how poetry is present um, in, in the way she writes her lyrics. So that's also a thing to note. If poetry kind of scares you, like reading a whole book of poetry, um, start out with something that you're a little more comfortable with, maybe like music. And also remember when you're looking at books of poetry that I, someone told me once that um, like poems are like kind of like dark chocolate. You don't want to take in too many of them at once. You want to kind of be with a couple of them Uh you know, have a couple of squares of dark chocolate and, and that's that's all you need at a time. So um, hopefully ways if if the idea of poetry kinda s- still reminds you of like AP uh English and failure and things like that, uh, there there is there's beauty and, and it doesn't have to be overwhelming.
0: So just enjoy one or two tiny pieces of dark chocolate as a celebration. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, When people read poetry, what would actually help them to understand it better, even if just on a surface level?
1: Yeah. Well, I think instead of trying to understand it, because I think we have a mindset of like, we've been taught to break poems into a lot of pieces. Like Like in school, it was like, where are the similes? Where are the metaphors? Where is the figurative language? Where is the... Where are the like consonants and assonants and all these little pieces? And so I think we've learned to see poems in pieces, and then we have to interpret it. And then we're like, oh my gosh, I don't understand it. So instead of trying to understand it, um, I would see what you can enjoy in the poem. Um, it's kind of like looking at a sunset. Where when you're looking at a sunset, I don't think you're usually asking questions about the science behind how the colors shift in the atmosphere. <laughs> Um, as the sun goes down, you're just enjoying the view. Um, so take it all in and enjoy the pieces that stand out to you. It's not so much about understanding as experiencing. Um, and what I've seen is just as in watching many sunsets, you grow an appreciation for the variety and beauty. I think... Uh, reading a poem multiple times or being exposed to poetry over time, I think, increases your ability to to notice things and to see things in a poem.
0: Oh, that would be a hidden benefit, that it would just sharpen your ability to be like a magpie. This was one of my descriptions that a professor in college had, that we should be hunting for shiny objects. Mm. And that reading poetry can teach us to do that. And I guess you're saying don't try to understand everything in the poem necessarily. Instead, enjoy a line here or a stanza there or maybe just a word here and just mm-hmm. appreciate and savor the beauty of individual components.
1: Yeah, I think if we go at it with an, with a desire to enjoy I think the experience will be a lot better, um, especially for those of us who are, um, either just getting back into poetry or are a little hesitant about poetry itself. Um, I think that, yeah.
0: Is there a particular poem that you have read more times than any other poem?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Well, a friend of mine, uh, and I have a poem of our friendship. It's T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of Jail for Rock. So we'll often, like, read parts of it uh, to each other when we talk. Um, or just say little pieces of it to each other. Um, so I'd say we, we've read that one a lot. It's just one we enjoy because it's just funny and kind of melancholic and we understand. Um, so... Yeah, I'd say that one might be one. And so we're just kind of enjoying it together. There are definite pieces of it where we're like, I probably couldn't really explain why he's saying this or what he exactly means, but we just kind of have fun with it. It's kind of uh, about our relationship. Um,
0: (laughs) I actually love the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock, and you're making me want to go reread it. My professor in college said, and I I was 19, I never would have picked this up, that right from the title, there's a big contrast right off the bat, because you have love song, and then you've got this name that just lands like a brick, J. Alfred Brufrock, so the the contrast is just delicious right from the get-go. I was hoping that maybe you could quote one of those lines that you and your friend back, back and forth.
1: Yeah. um, We often say there will be time, time for you and time for me, time for the taking of a toast and tea, Um, (laughs) things like that. Um, Oh, yeah. Like, do I dare disturb the universe? Um, Yeah. In a minute, there is time for maybe visions and revisions, which a minute will reverse or something like that. Um, I might be... Not quoting those exactly right, but and then there's always the in the halls, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo and all that stuff. So we, yeah, we enjoy kind of tossing those back and forth.
0: Well, I just love that. Do I dare disturb the universe? And then there's <laughs> yeah. another line in that poem where he says, Do I dare eat a peach? which these are just (laughs) so opposite. Do I just stare at the universe like I'm going to pick up the whole universe and shake it like a child's toy? And then just a few lines later, do I dare eat a peach, which has got to be the most innocent thing that a person could possibly do. Um, It's just a delightful set of contrasts, and it's actually a very funny poem. Uh, Love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I completely recommend that people look this up and read this
1: yeah it's so good and yeah i mean i it's it's very intriguing that yeah he doesn't want to get peach juice on his clothing you know (laughs) he's so self-conscious that like disturbing the universe and eating a peach are the same weight um and so i find that great and i love the end part of that which is um He's talking about the mermaids singing each to each, and then he's like, I do not think they'll sing for me. And it's just like, oh, like, <laughs> he's just so melancholic. Yeah. And I, I think it tickles us because we both have, uh, my friend and I both are pretty melancholic ourselves. And so we, we just recognize and proof some of the same anxieties in ourselves. And I think that that's just, he's, he's such a delight.
0: I'm delighted that that's the one that you brought up. Well, Mm -hmm. I'd like to shift gears just a little bit and talk about money. Uh, I teach personal finance, so I wind up thinking about money. um, And specifically, essay writing and money, or poetry and money. Uh, There are some famous essayists and some famous poets. But it's tough to make a living in these fields. Uh, If a person wanted to make a living as a writer, maybe as an essayist, maybe as a poet, maybe as some other kind of writer... Do you have any recommendations?
1: You aren't going to make money as a poet, but <laughs> you have more. If you're a novelist, maybe um, you have more of a ability to hit a mass market. But I'd say as you're kind of working on those projects, like uh, you, you know, a book of poetry or a novel. Um, Write for a variety of outlets. Um, There are some companies uh, that pay quite a lot to have people write for them. Um, Being a technical writer, too, huge uh, market for that. And you can make a living as a technical writer. Um, So, yeah, um, poetry is probably the hardest one uh, to you, you, I don't know. It sounds like so bad to say, but I, I really don't think you can make a living as a poet, just as a poet. Um, you usually have to be a, maybe a professor and also teach it or something like that um, if you want poetry to be your your life.
0: Yeah, I'm um, struggling to think of anybody who made his living as a poet. Uh, I think even when you look at Shakespeare, people maybe forget that he was running a theater and uh, writing these uh, poetic plays as plays and that a lot of people were already familiar with the stories in advance. And in his mm-hmm. era, it was really more of a competition to see who could tell the story the best. Yes.
1: And so a lot of his
0: plays yes. are things that the audience was already familiar with. And and again, you have the whole carnival atmosphere of the theater. It's very exciting. Everybody's there. Uh, it's kind of a wild time. Um, He's a writer, he's a director, he's a theater owner and manager, he was an actor. I think people sort of forget that the poetry was just sort of a side gig for even Shakespeare. Do you know of a single poet who has actually made his or her living as a poet? Because I can't think of one.
1: I am unsure. I I feel like the romantics, there may have been maybe one of them who did pretty well during their lifetime. Um, But, yeah, I I can't really think of an actual name, (laughs) which goes to show it probably isn't that common.
0: So I, I think maybe would it be fair to say that if I want to be a good writer and maybe make a living as a writer, if I write poetry, that's just going to make me sharper and more lyrical, but it's going to have sort of an indirect benefit, on my livelihood versus a direct, oh, here's some money. You wrote a nice poem.
1: Yeah, I'd say so though. I, there are actually, there's probably at least, it depends on this kind of poetry you're doing because there is kind of a realm of like Insta poetry. And I do know which Insta poetry, meaning Instagram poetry. um, There is one particular author I'm thinking about who has, who has done very well for herself um, and published a couple of books um, in in that market of things. So I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what possibilities become available for poets in the future. Um, I think it's hard. We live in a culture that's very fast paced and we don't have a lot of time to sit down with poetry, especially with some of our, I think, cultural assumptions about poetry sometimes, which is like, oh, it's going to be hard to understand. So, yeah, I'd say what you just described is how I feel, but I think there might be some ways in which people are kind of pushing the bounds to make poetry a little bit more of a living.
0: That so, is fascinating. Yeah. I just never would have seen that coming in a million years. I just have yeah. to say. Yeah. Um, now, you have one more accomplishment that I would just love to discuss. You won the KC Poetry on the Move contest, and your poem was actually printed on the Casey streetcar for thousands of people to read. So congratulations on that. I I just think that's very incredible. You won the contest. How did that come about?
1: Sure. Um, A friend posted about this contest on Facebook. Um, They were looking for poems about Kansas City. And as someone living in Kansas City, I was writing poems about Kansas City. Um, so I submitted and yeah, I was one of the winners. There were three others. And yeah, our poems were last summer um, in the streetcar stops um, in in Kansas City, which was really, really lovely. I love when poetry can be accessible to people. It's not just inside of a journal that, people, that most people don't get to look at. I love it when, yeah, It's just there for people to spend time with if they want to.
0: It's beautiful. Um, what's the title of the poem?
1: Um, the title is going to be, um, humility. Um, it takes place at the Bluebird Bistro, um, which is kind of a favorite restaurant of mine in the KC area. Um, and it's also about the uncertainty I've felt during this time of life where so much seems rootless, um, But also, I feel the poem kind of nods toward hope um, that there's much to be seen during this time as well.
0: Will you read it to us, please?
1: Sure. Okay. So it's called Humility. The bristling gray of February is transfigured by roses, single-legged flamingos in soda bottles, framed by Victorian-style windows, exposed brick. Subtle sweetness in vanilla-battered ciabatta, dollop of pecan butter. Nitched into a window corner, my mother and I sip aged earl grey to the drip of folded umbrellas. The word humility means coming closer to the ground, In fall, the starry leaves of sweet gum trees burned even more brightly marigold and tangerine against wet bark. Rain-soaked chalk left a bold mark on the sidewalk. Today it means bending toward the calm way my mother says future while it staccatoes on my lips, toward a broken rose splayed orange in this day of rain, toward the distressed floors behind a lemon-colored door. Where a pedal dropped but a moment to go and unravel
0: the sky. Lindsay, I think that is just a perfect note to end on. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about normal people. Well, they appear normal. Underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. If you come back Thursday, there will be a mini episode about the creative process and what some world-class behaviors are in regards to that. The two biggest favors you could do for me would be for you to share this podcast. The next biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to check out my novels that are on Amazon and my nonfiction book. Until next time.